Sports FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom buying for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm co-host and executive producer Harry Siegel, and in just a moment, you'll be hearing from Ben Frachtenberg, the city's visual producer and formerly a reporter at DNA Info, and Susan Watts, who pod listeners and others may recall from her previous Deadline Club award-winning visit to the pod and the 25-plus years she spent shooting for the Daily News. Readers of my column in the news may also recognize her as the former director of visual content for the New York City's Controller's Office for about the last five years, who was just fired without notice and not for cause by new controller Brad Lander, who's pushing for a just cause law that would make it illegal for employers here to arbitrarily fire employees. Hmm. Ben and Susan are going to be talking with host Alex Brooklyn about some of the pictures behind their stories and much more in the latest installment of our occasional series, Talking About Pictures. But first, a reminder that FAQ NYC is now part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to serving the people of New York. Our hard-hitting local news is powered by listeners and readers like you. And now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city will be doubled. Head to thecity.nyc slash give to donate today. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. Thanks, Harry. And welcome, Ben and Susan. Let's jump right in. First, before we get to your guys' pictures and going through them and hearing the awesome stories behind them, I wanted to get a little background on you both for our listeners. So Susan and Ben, you both have been working in New York City for a while. Ben, you kind of came up in a big thing on your resume that a lot of people notice is DNA Info, which is one of the bigger New York following digital properties uh, in the aughts. And um, Susan, you have been a breaking news photographer for a very like classic print paper is it's where your kind of origin story in photography uh starts and so i really was interested to see those two perspectives and wondering if both of you could give us a little more info on your thoughts on how photography has changed since you started uh, in the game of uh, New York City journalism, New York City press corps, um, and both in terms of like tools of the trade, economics of the business, uh, time, and 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 the the way it felt to shoot in the city. Sure. So um, the evolution of photography in New York City from when I started to today has been truly profound. Um, It has changed leaps and bounds since I started in this business uh, back in the days when there really was no internet. And uh, we were still shooting film when I started at the Daily News, and we would go out and shoot our stories and come back to the newsroom and soup our film in the machines and look through uh, light tables, you know, look at our film through light tables, and we would indeed scan those uh, frames into the system and uh, edit our work, and it would appear in the paper the next day. And 
Now people joke that, uh, you know, newspapers are yesterday's news, but that's how people really got their news back then. And there were many a times I stood by the, <laughs> the newsstands waiting for the for the newspapers to, to come out of the back of those trucks and slam down on the grounds and grab my copy of, of, uh, of a story that I was looking forward to seeing or, you know, and but it has changed profoundly, particularly when, you know, the iPhones came into existence and the immediacy of of capturing images in that way. And now with social media kind of running the news industry, you know, it's it's like a rocket ship. You know, you you shoot something and it's online instantaneously. So it's it's been an incredible trajectory of of uh, of the industry. Ben, what what has your experience uh, been like with photojournalism in New York since you started? You know, my experience has seen the profound changes as well. You know, when I started out at DNA Info, just because of the nature of our news site, we really needed to do photography and reporting at the same time. So I came up learning how to do both. And it was because of all the photojournalists, you know, like Susan and, and others who really took time and were patient with me and kind of showed me the ropes that I was able to learn the art of photojournalism. And, you know, that's one of the things that really concerns me about the change in media industry is, is a loss of that institutional knowledge. Um, you know, the Daily News, of course, laid off all their staff photographers. They just have freelancers now. And it's harder and harder to have, if you're coming up, those mentors to really learn um, the art of photojournalism, because it's something that it's much different than, you know, taking a photograph for Instagram, for example, you know, really thinking about how to layer an image to get all the elements in there to tell a complete story visually. And that takes a lot of practice to learn how to do. And it also takes a lot of practice to get the gumption to position yourself, you know, get close enough to get the right photograph, to be in the streets day in and day out, to know how to talk to all different types of people. Um, you know, when I teach photojournalism, one of the things that I always instill upon my students is that the reason why I was able to make the transition in large part is because I really learned, you know, first as an intern at the Daily News and later at DNA Info, how to talk to people. You know, I would be in any given day at a crime scene, then I would be at a press conference with the mayor. And, you know, I would have to be able to um, ask difficult questions in those situations and to disarm people. And that's really one of the most important things about uh, photography. If you don't have that connection with people, if you can't get people to feel comfortable and let their guard down a little bit to show you um, a bit of who they actually are, then the photograph is never going to be that compelling, no matter how expensive your gear is. That was so well said, Ben. I have to just to quickly interject and say that you just really, um, you just described the very essence of successful uh, photojournalism and photography with what you just said. I just couldn't agree more. I couldn't I couldn't agree more with everything you've said. So I quickly before we get to the pictures, I just wanted to I have some experience myself running around the city trying to get quotes, trying to get pictures um just to give people a sense of what it's like if you had to briefly describe I mean, like what it really feels like to be a photojournalist in the city, um, in New York City, from from running around to the courts, to a crime scene, that kind of thing, having to, you know, constantly uh, be sent somewhere or have to 
find your own way. So one of the differences I always found was been like DNA info. Did they have a dispatcher, for instance, like the Daily News or a tabloid would have, where they have a dispatcher who will call and say there's a three alarm fire on 19th street, or there's, you know, you're on the courts today because there's a particularly salacious case. How did it work differently with a digital property like DNA info? And Susan, if you could talk a little bit about how it really worked uh, for a tabloid, Um, Ben, why don't you go first? Yeah. So it worked similar to the way I'd imagine things really worked at the tabloids for a long time. You know, I was a general assignment reporter for DNA info. So what in the business we would call a runner or a stringer. And I would check in each morning or generally get a phone call um, phone call from an editor um, who would call me and tell me whatever the latest breaking news was. And I would have to run there and really figure out the situation on my feet. I mean, it, oftentimes it wasn't a ton of information that we would get. It would just sort of be, okay, we know that there's a major fire that broke out on you know 272 East 92nd Street. Just get up there and tell us what the situation is. And you're you know, oftentimes just find yourself in this maelstrom. You know, you you get off the subway, there'd be, you know, FDNY trucks everywhere. There'd be police, there'd be neighbors out, you know, kind of looking at what's going on. And you'd very quickly have to try and figure out what the situation was. And that could be very anxiety inducing. Um, but it was also very thrilling too. And it was also, um, you know, exciting to put together the pieces of the puzzle in real time and to talk to people and get information that wasn't out there yet. Um, to get to the public. So I, you know, I, I'd love to hear Susan's experience as well. But for me, as a first as a reporter, um, you know, that really helped me you know, get into photography to be able to get to scenes and, and quickly figure out where I needed to position myself to get the photograph. So the Daily News sort of did, you know, not sort of, they absolutely had a centralized assignment editor who would be monitoring everything, or you know, all the different uh, events uh, and scenes going on in the city via police uh, radios. And we also, as photographers, would be listening to police radios. So it would really vary. I mean, it, it we could hear something, call the desk. They would say, okay, go. Or the desk would hear some big news event happening and it would depend on who's nearby. Very often, you know, there would be people who were nearby and, you know, they would quickly dispatch photographers to that particular location. And I always would feel that the assignment editor was sort of the conductor of the orchestra, right? You know, you had all these different instruments in the field, people who had a particular specialty with something or were particularly adept at covering a particular kind of news. Uh, And other times it was all hands on deck. Whoever's nearby, let's just get it, get it in the can. So it was very, very exciting when those big news stories would happen. You always hoped that you were as close by as you can. You know, you hear all kinds of crazy stories, particularly of people like Todd Maisel who would drive on the sidewalks to, you know, skirt the traffic to get to different stories. But, you know, you really did have to wear so many different hats, as Ben was saying earlier. You know, you find yourself in so many different situations and you really are interacting with this kind of kaleidoscope of humanity and your ability to navigate those different worlds and the different populations, you really had to have a particular way of conducting yourself and being able to maneuver in those different worlds in order to get the pictures that you needed to make 
you know, whether it be at a crime scene and learning how to, you know, maneuver through a, a crime scene, or, you know, if you're at a funeral, for instance, and, you know, the sensitivity that's required, depending on the population, of course, that you're covering, or uh, whether it's in a courtroom, or, you know, whether you're photographing a celebrity or uh, a politician, you know, you you really have to be able to maneuver in all of those worlds in order to make the pictures that you needed to make. Especially in New York City, because all of those things are going on all the time at any given day. Right. Uh, you got a celebrity coming out of the courts and, um, you know, a crime scene uh, somewhere in downtown Manhattan. And then, you know, a parade in the Bronx. You never know. Um, but that's what I always thought was so uh, engaging and um interesting about city photographers who would just run almost like ping pong balls around the whole whole city. Um, so let's, I'd love to get into some of the photographs that you guys sent that are just examples of, you know, moments, um, particular photographs that you're each proud of. Uh, Susan, so you sent us a couple photographs. What the first one I want to talk about is, uh, a line of dogs that are walking on, you said, uh, the Major Deegan? That was the Major Deegan, yes. So it was one of these sort of quiet mornings. And over the police scanner, which again, you know, we would always listen to the police scanner to kind of see what's going on in the city. And they kept reporting that there was a quote-unquote wild pack of dogs uh, maneuvering on the Deegan Expressway. And you'd hear this wild pack of dogs, you know, caused another accident. Oh, more cars collided because of this wild pack of dogs. We can't find this wild pack of dogs. And that was exclusively how they referred to these dogs. So by amazing coincidence, I was, you know, I drove over the Willis Avenue bridge. I drove onto the Deegan and there was this wild pack of dogs <laughs> very like marching like soldiers all with their tails up in the air just marching by on the Deegan <laughs> and there was that wild pack of dogs <laughs> but they just look <laughs> th this this wild pack of dogs they look so sweet um they look they are marching all in a line and they almost look like domestic dogs they're not matted they're not um they don't they seem unbothered and the background <clears throat> has a perfect spectrum of all kind of New York City fall winter colors. You've got your blue sky, you've got the the maroon brick face from I believe like the 1930s. You have a more modern 70s building that has kind of like a tan, a slightly blonder brick. I mean you have this like milieu of all the different kinds of New York surfaces behind them uh that I really like so much. And um, I hope I hope the dogs survived. Did you know what happened to the dogs? <laughs> I think they ultimately corralled the dogs and brought them to animal control. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. But what I also love about this picture is the the driver of the car, you know, in the in the other lane, you know, where you could clearly see that the dogs were on the highway, and and they weren't even in the middle of the road. You know, they were being, you know. <laughs> Uh, uh, really consider it by staying within the shoulder of the road. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, walking single file is incredible because it looks like they're marching almost. They It looks like they're marching and all of their tails are up except for the second guy whose tail's only half up. What, uh, what year is this around? 
I'm trying to remember exactly when I, I was looking at this picture earlier, but it was in the in probably the the mid nineties, I believe. All right, Ben, let's talk about the first photo that you sent us, which is a formerly homeless disabled immigrant disembarking on a bus in New Jersey on the way to his job at an Amazon warehouse. And this is a nighttime photo lit primarily by the small starlight type lights on the bus, the bus's side lights and the, um, the, uh, yeah, the interior door of the bus that has a kind of the, these lights shining out onto the street. Yeah, you know, this is a story I've been trying to do for a long time. I've been looking at issues of people with disabilities navigating the subway system and through my contacts got connected with this incredible um, gentleman named Sahid who immigrated from Nigeria. It's a very long story, but to make it short, um, he was disavowed by his father for having a disability he had to crawl to a bus station and beg to be taken to Lagos, which he was, lived there with other disabled people under a bridge next to a stadium. And from there, he was actually able to go to the stadium and um, some coaches there took a liking to him and got him involved with sports, um, tennis and basketball, and uh, gave him his first wheelchair. And he was able to get a visa to come to the States eventually, which he did without any money. Um, got off in New York Airport, you know, stayed in the parking lot um, and was able to get to the city and, and managed to get into the shelter system. And what I documented was he was still in the shelter system living on Wards Island and would commute generally two to two and a half hours each day um, using the public buses, the subway and then New Jersey Transit um, to an Amazon fulfillment center where he had managed to secure employment. And this photograph is a New Jersey transit bus dropping him off in the middle of a residential neighborhood, uh, not well lit. So, you know, I like photographs like this that give you windows into other worlds. So the main subject is Sahid uh, exiting the bus. You, you know, he, they have a door um, on the side that opens up so it, people in wheelchairs can exit that way as opposed to having to go down, you know, navigate the steps in the front of the bus. So he is entering that ramp, which is about to be lowered. And, you know, that creates a frame where you see him and gives you some elements of the story. But, you know, you could also see in the other windows, the passengers looking at him and trying to ascertain what's going on. Or, you know, you can just think about what they might be thinking about what the situation is. And it's, you know, for me, um, a photograph of perseverance and also just, again, navigating uh, the difficulties of navigating the city, all the different institutions that he was having to navigate. You know, our, our legal system, he was eventually able to get a permanent residency uh, after claiming asylum. And it's just just the bureaucratic hurdles he had to go to were immense. And for me, there was a visual metaphor in this photograph about all of that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the uh, tale of perseverance is absolutely right. So you have more in that series or that goes with a written piece? Yeah, it's it's. Um... My, it's primarily a, a photo piece, a photo essay, where myself and our great transit reporter, Jose Martinez, um, tagged along Zahid while he was uh, going from Wards Island to the Amazon Fulfillment Center in New Jersey. So that's uh, on the city website, and uh, folks can find it there and uh, go through the journey visually and, and see 
you know, what he was dealing with to, to navigate uh, our transportation system. I'm going to hop to the second one of Susan's where basically the frame is looking out of a window and there is a window washer and he's at the bottom center of the frame and he is wiping soap from right to left. He's wiping soap off of the window and behind him, you can see, you can see the trade center. Am I right? Yes. Um, So this frame is a really important frame to me. I, in, in, in 20, excuse me, 2006, uh, we were doing a piece on the fifth anniversary of the World Trade Center attacks. So my photo editor uh, at the time, Mike Lipak, said to me, uh, we want to, we have to memorialize this. This is such an important time, you know, these really significant milestones in, in, in these, you know, the anniversary, the, the first anniversary, the fifth anniversary, the 10th anniversary of the World Trade Center. So this was the fifth anniversary. And he said, just, you know, go down to lower Manhattan and see what's going on down there. How is the, how has the community uh, evolved from, from that tragic day? And I was, I remember standing there in, in Battery Park and thinking like, wow, how am I going to capture the the transformation of a community after such a horrific terrorist attack and how the community has rebounded? And I remember thinking, you know, it's in these very fleeting moments of the everyday, you know, that's how people have rebuilt their community. You know, kids doing cartwheels on the grass in Battery Park City, where World Trade Center debris once stood. Um, you know, folks having lunch at a restaurant, uh, you know, these very sort of fleeting moments of daily life. And to me, the notion of like window washers, like the people who wanted clean windows, to me felt very symbolic. And I remember sitting, I, I worked on this story all summer, that summer in, in 2006, um, because we were obviously going to run it for the anniversary in September. And I tried with all my might to get up into so many different buildings where there'd be a window washers, you know, because again, this idea of like clean windows and people wanting to see out the windows and see into the future. And everybody said no. Everybody kept saying, no, 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 you can't go out. You can't go out. You can't come in. You can't all. No, 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 no. And the whole summer, I just envisioned this, this frame that I wanted for the story. So I see this window washer one day. And once again, I, I ring the bell and, and this, this man opens the door and I give him my whole spiel. Hi, I'm with the Daily News. I, I see that there's a window washer out there. I'd really love to make a picture of the window washer cleaning the windows. And he just looks at me with this with this beautiful smile. And he says to me, sure, come up. So he brings me up to the floor where the window washer is. And he opens up the door. And it's this breathtaking view of ground zero. And... What was so amazing to me is the guy's wearing a New York City hat. His baseball hat is a New York City hat. And this frame was everything and more that I had envisioned. It spoke about everything that I was trying to capture in that moment. And 
the man's name who let me in, which I thought was also very symbolic, his name was Abe New, Mr. New, N-E-W. And I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. this is really something. And I said, why is it important for you as a building manager to have clean windows? Why, why does it matter? And he he said the most beautiful quote, you know, we, we need to be able to see to the future for us to remember, you know, to, for us to remember what happened in the past, we need clean windows in order to see into the future. So, so this picture became the lead picture in in my in my project. The project eventually, you know, ran. The Daily News created a special magazine to um, to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the of the World Trade Center attacks. But the project eventually became a public photo exhibition and was displayed in Battery Park for six months. There were these huge photographs uh, that were adhered to the fence in Battery Park that were created by Dugal Visual Images, uh, Visual Solutions, uh, which is a big, you know, photo production house. And it was really something to watch all the people maneuver through Battery Park and to to really be inspired by the, the transformation of this community that had suffered so much. And this picture is my favorite picture from, from that project because of my, because of that whole story. That's a great story. And it also shows like how much you, how much people in the city, it, it's not just photojournalism. I mean, maneuvering in the city is kind of amazing. I used to work for a woman that made, but like got furniture for film sets when I was very first starting out. And she had this deal with um, like supers of buildings and, and how she would make those relationships is just the same way, you know, going to a door, seeing that someone was moving out, knocking on the door and being like, Hey, I would really love some of the old furniture. I could, you know, that kind of maneuvering, that kind of hustle. Um, I'm not like a big fan of, uh, you know, the contemporary definition of hustle culture, but that that hustle of just like talking to people, knocking on doors, making those connections. And I think it is a real art, as Ben was saying before, that is utilized a lot, obviously, in news gathering and photojournalism, but also in various other little industries in the city, how we all kind of make these connections to hear each other's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Ben, I am going to go to your second photograph. Bellevue nurses walking off the job during a Black Lives Matter protest at the peak of COVID. So am I right in assuming that this is summer of 2020? Is this a Black Lives Matter protest uh, post the killing of George Floyd? Correct, it is. And it was a solidarity protest. So... Uh, workers at Bellevue, hundreds of them, um, walked off the job. Um, you know, I believe it was during a lunch break, and held a rally in, in front of the entrance um, to the hospital. And you know, I found out about it. Um, you know, I got an email and and showed up there, and was one of the few photographers who was there. I just think because of peak COVID and other protests going on, not all the newsrooms. Um, had time to send somebody and you know I was able to uh work my way into the crowd and you know I had my N95 mask at that time and was you know as as careful as I could be but one of the things that was very striking to me about that photograph is just the look of intensity on the nurses faces and, and you could really see them kind of staring at one of the speakers and there's 
either one nurse uh, in the middle who's wearing an N95 mask and has his hair covered. And then you could see two nurses um, in the background where you just see each just one of their eyes um, peeking over um, the shoulders of the, the nurse in the foreground. And there's something very haunting about that to me. It's kind of the sense of somebody peeking through a keyhole um, almost into an uncertain future, into a very, you know, sort of difficult, frightening place, but a place that they knew that they were going to enter, had to enter. And uh, there's something very poetic about that to me. And, you know, being in that situation, um, you know, is, is, is very much about having the sensitivity to not disrupt, but then to really capture that emotional intensity um, that workers had, not only because of the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened um, to Mr. Floyd, but then also everything that they were going through at, at Bellevue and the other city hospitals, you know, struggling to find PPE. You know, you can see in the photograph as well that they all appear to have um, different uh, face coverings on and just speaks to the fact that, you know, some of it looks like, you know, they might have gone to the hospital, but some of the gear also probably had to get on their own as well. Um, so these are people in an extremely harrowing, difficult situation, surrounded by death, trying not to get sick and die themselves, but then also um, having the gumption to walk out and have this um, intense act of, of solidarity. Yeah, that was um, for nurses and medical staff. And, and at the same time as they have, they're fighting for the PPE, they're also... Um, you know, being applauded at 7 p.m. throughout the whole city, which was a beautiful sentiment. But a lot of people had commentary on how, you know, the clapping wasn't enough. And and so the, I, I think uh, health healthcare workers, the, this image is is a really is a really lovely representation of just like the look on the face of a nurse or, or I am assuming he's a nurse um, and healthcare workers and and just like how tired they were in the summer of 2020. Um, and yeah. So both of you are, are such incredible photographers. Ben, there's so many of your pictures that you've taken for the city that I love so much, especially through COVID. And Susan, I mean, your entire uh, catalog of work representing you know the denizens of New York, just incredible. Um, I do encourage people to go take a listen to the last time we had Susan on. Uh, the link will be in the notes for this episode. So I have to ask, there are so many like crime scene photos and perp walks um, and things like that, that I know uh, you guys have had to do several times. Why, what do you think of, of photographs like that? Um, and and what made you not choose any of those to send in to talk about today? Wow, what a what an amazing question. Um, there have been uh, incalculable uh, perp walks and crime scenes that I have covered um, over the years. And I guess... I didn't include any of those because those are not the moments that resonate with me. Um, they are history. They are news. They, you know, they 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 exist in their within the constraints of what they are. But 
Uh, for me personally, it doesn't, it's, it's not necessarily something that I would show. I don't know. I, that's a really good question. That's a, that's a really good question. There is one photograph though, that I did make of a, of a, but it's not really a crime scene years ago. It, it's a really sad moment, of course, but it, 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 it the, the, the photograph uh, structurally is what is what makes it so interesting and appealing. Um, it's a woman um, committed suicide and hung herself over the Van Wyck Expressway, tied a rope around her neck and hung herself over the Van Wyck Expressway. And it's so disturbing to see, but the way the photograph was framed it's just this very kind of graphic composition. Um, so that photograph I show, but other sort of crime scenes and perp walks, I, it just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate with me personally. I have a good, so over the Van Wyck Expressway, was she hanging from a, a, a lamp or a light post? A rope, a, a rope from the railing. So, I mean, mm. it, it, try to imagine this for a moment, which is so just ghastly. You know, you're driving down the Van Wyck Expressway, you know, when you turn and you see a body hanging from a rope. And, you know, by the time I got there, the police had put a sheet over her because it was a deeply gruesome spectacle. But but before mm. that, before the police would have gotten there, I just couldn't even have imagined just just see that. And how traumatizing that would be for people. Yeah. Wow. Um, ben, uh, what what would you say to my question as to why you didn't choose any of the kind of classic uh, New York press corps images, whether it was a, a courthouse or a perp walk or a jail or a crime scene or something like that? You know, at the city, we don't do a ton of breaking news, and we do occasionally if it's a, a major story. But I think just because of that, most of my photography is more for original uh, stories or feature um, stories that I may be working on. So it's it's just a in my catalog, I don't have a ton of those photographs. But I really admire photographers and you know, photojournalists who can take compelling photographs in those situations. You know, actually, when I was talking to to Harriet about um, preparing for this. Um, podcast, I was thinking about images that resonated with me in New York City's history. And one of the ones I thought about was the perp walk um, after during the Son of Sam killings when David Berkowitz was arrested. And there's one, I believe, in the Daily News where the photographer got very close. Looks like they were using flash. And, you know, you see Berkowitz walking, you know, I assume with the two police officers um, escorting him. And you know, for the city and, and for them um, in the 70s, that was probably the first time anyone got an image of this person who they would, you know, obviously were imagining all throughout that summer what this monstrous person must look like. And there was definitely an art to that. And it's, you know, it takes a lot of experience um, as a photojournalist to know where to place yourself and to be able to get close enough um, in a situation like that. So I, I certainly learned a lot about how to cover tense situations and where to place yourself in breaking new situations from those types of photographs. Um, you know, but for myself, it's just not a, a ton of the images that, that I make at the city. 
And just as a, as an ending, like if there were some working photographers today that you guys could call out that you just really like, um, some of our listeners might go explore their work. Do either of you have any in mind that you would shout out as far as, um, people whose work that you really like? Yeah, I think Stephanie Keith is doing some really, really strong work. Um, and I would definitely encourage people to go look at look at her work. Who does she shoot for? Does she yeah. she shoot she shoot she's freelance, but she shoots a lot for uh, the New York Times and for um, uh, I believe Reuters and Getty, I think. Um, but her work, she covers a lot of the different stories in in New York. And I love her style of shooting, and I think she's just an exceptional photojournalist. Um, ben. I would mention actually three three people that you know really inspired me. One, um, Damon Winter, who shoots for the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize when he first started <clears throat> documenting um, President Obama's first run in two thousand eight, and he has some very striking photographs, and also photographs graphically that are really interesting to me, and taught me a lot about how you can be creative and break rules in photojournalism. You know, because he's at events where there's a lot of other photographers, but was still able to get very unique photographs. Um, it, another photographer's name is um, Matt Black, who worked on this project called The Geography of Poverty, where over a number of years, he took buses all across the country to um, towns and, and small cities with the largest percentage of people living below the poverty line and created these striking um, black and white photographs documenting um, the scenery, um, very moving portrait photographs of people living with poverty, living and dealing with poverty. And th- those were really inspiring. It was an incredible um, project. Then also um, this other photographer named Dina um, Lutowski. I apologize, I don't uh, say her last name uh, incorrectly, but I've seen a lot of her work on Instagram and she does incredible work uh, with Flash. Some of the most incredible flash photography that I've seen and really, you know, capturing, doing event photography, photojournalism, but capturing things in a very, very unique way. Well, I'm really excited to see um, more work from you guys. Do you, uh, Susan, do you have anything coming up that we should look out for? Um, Are you working on anything right now? Um, I'm just trying to get my archive all together. That's really, I've done, I'm digging deep into my archive right now. I'm just trying to get my archive together. The eternal battle (laughs) for, for anyone who's into photography. I am looking at just like boxes of negatives and hard drives Mm -hmm. next to me right now, because I too am trying to put any sort of order to the madness okay well good yeah. luck with that and ben as always if you want to see more of ben's work you can go to the city.nyc thank you guys so much for being here thank you so much for having us thank you yeah thank you so much it was so uh, wonderful to be able to speak about photojournalism f-a-q this has been f-a-q nyc we're a part of the city a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. From now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city will be doubled. And you can do that by going to thecity.nyc/slash give today. That's thecity.nyc/slash G I V E. 
We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at popula.com. Our host this episode was Alex Brooklyn, and our executive producer is Harry Siegel. I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to our guests, Ben Frachtenberg of The City and Susan Watts. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.